Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us for live from Studio Q, coming to you live from the WQLN studios. We have a rousing audience, and we've got a wonderfully special guest today, uh, somebody we don't get to see very often on the concert stage in Erie, a concert bassist and a composer. Five Grammys under his belt, a MacArthur Award, an Avery Fisher Prize. Uh, the only one I understand awarded ever to a bassist, so far as we know. Dozens of recordings, collaborations with Yo-Yo Ma, Chris Thiele, Bela Fleck, Joshua Bell, Hilary Hahn, Mark O'Connor, Emmanuel Axe. The New Yorker said he was the most remarkable virtuoso in the relatively unchronicled history of his instrument. Of course, we're talking about the inimitable Edgar Meyer. Ladies and gentlemen, Edgar Meyer. Welcome to WQLN. Thanks, Brian. Also joining us uh, up here at the uh, front of the studio is the Erie Philharmonic conductor, music director, Daniel Meyer. Thank you for joining us, Daniel. Good morning. I might be in the way here, but again, Steve Weiser, the executive director of the Erie Philharmonic, also joining us. So thank you so much. Now, tomorrow night with your Erie Philharmonic, you're gonna hear some wonderful music uh, for the bass, which we don't get to hear again very often, including a Bottasini concerto, and we're going to hear Edgar Meyer's own bass concerto. So it's uh, two special concertos from our guest soloist this time. Uh, let's start with Daniel real quick, and then we'll get to Edgar in just a minute. Uh, do you wanna give us a quick overview of tomorrow night's program? Sure, so uh, we actually begin the program uh, this is part of a four-year retrospective that we've been honoring the music of Beethoven. Not that he needs any special help, <laughs> because his, his music constitutes a staple of the, of the orchestra's repertoire, repertoire. But I should say that it's been a real joy to kind of put this extra spotlight or this focus on Beethoven, um, particularly in um, some off-the-beaten-path pieces. Now, Leonora Number 3 is not an off-the-beaten-path piece, but the fact that it even exists is slightly strange and odd, an, an odd quirk of, of music history in that Beethoven was continuing to struggle with what does he do with this opera, how is it put together? He didn't even settle on a title. Um, it was originally called something else. It was called Leonora before it became Fidelio. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the birthplace of this, uh, this idea of creating a, a, a three separate overtures for, for one opera. But number three is by far the most expertly crafted of the bunch. It's the one that uh, conductors wanted to make sure was incorporated in any performance of Fidelio, even if it didn't fit the action per se. So uh, I believe it was Gustav Mahler who came up with the idea of putting Leonor Leonorma number three at the top of the, of the final act as a kind of standalone concert piece, uh, an enormously dramatic insertion into an already very dramatic operatic performance. But what's so great about this, uh, this overture is that it, it, it is vintage Beethoven. It has all the wonderful rhythmic energy that it has. It has this nobility. And the other day I was talking at Spring Hill and saying, well, what makes this so special? It's, you're literally watching an edifice being built out of, out of notes. He's able to take very small ideas, uh, very small building blocks, and over an expanse of time, create something that's really impressive to listen to. And you can literally feel the architecture kind of coming alive in front of your eyes with this particular piece. And it's just a piece I've admired for a long time. It's, it's actually quite tricky uh, for the orchestra, so we've been... Um, honing in on some of those tricky aspects of it uh, in rehearsals, but it, it, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a wonderful piece of music and a wonderful document from a special part of Beethoven's life, and that is the writing of his one and only opera. And then, of course, with Edgar, we'll talk more about his pieces, but um, I, I love this idea of 
featuring the double basses of virtuoso solo instrument. We don't often think of it as such, but it certainly deserves to be thought of as such. And someone like Bottasini was a big proponent of turning this instrument into something that wasn't just playing 1-5-1-5, but something that could really penetrate through the texture of an orchestra and could show off a, a virtuoso uh, technique. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that. And speaking of operas, Bottasini was an opera conductor as well. So what he would do was take his, he would take his double bass up during the entracts in between the acts of the opera and pull his double bass out and play fantasias on the themes that he had just played with the orchestra and the operatic cast. Uh, it just, it's kind of mind-blowing that he would, A, have the energy to do this, but B, um, be able to pull this off over the span of a three-and-a-half, four-hour evening of, of an operatic performance. Um, so that's fun to think about. And then, of course, uh, Respighi's Pines of Rome, it's hard to introduce this piece. It kind of stands for itself. It's this incredibly colorful tone poem for orchestra. It's not about trees at all, even though it's called the Pines of Rome. The trees kind of act, I described this the other day as, the trees act as little totems with, with uh, webcams on them, if you will. Uh, they're recording the activity that's happening in those areas of Rome over the course of history. And he's reimagining what those moments would be, whether it's ch children running around and screaming and teasing each other, running through a forest, or if it's a centurion army kind of marching on, on Rome and, and coming into its glory as it approaches the city. Those types of historical and very human elements of the music uh, come to life in a musical way in this tone poem, and he is widely regarded as one of the finest orchestrators that we know, which is to say he takes the different instruments of the orchestra and the families and combines them in ways that are very, very vivid, uh, very uh, descriptive, and just attractive. I, I Sometimes I feel a little guilty <laughs> standing around this incredible amount of sound and this and these wonderful effects um, uh, that, that come out of this particular piece. And it's such an iconic piece. It's, you know, uh, probably one of the top 10 most requested pieces of music mm. out there uh, for, for an orchestra. So, and it's massive. It's a huge orchestra, isn't it? It is a huge orchestra and it's an expanded orchestra, which is to say there's, there are elements of extra, uh, extra musical elements. Uh, you're actually going to hear some bird calls in the third movement of the piece. Um, and then you're also going to hear an offstage, um, beautiful offstage trumpet solo from our, our, our principal trumpet, Gary Davis. But also we have hired an additional brass band to play from the rafters. How many extras are that? Well, we've got six, six extras, but you can, you can actually do an entire... I've heard of the Ohio State Marching Band being the offstage brass band for performances of Pines of Rome. And in our case, we'll have six musicians. Yeah, can you afford that, Steve? Uh, we'll have six musicians stationed in the balcony of, of, of the Warner Theater to give you this incredible quadraphonic, stereophonic effect of, of kind of this bantering back and forth of, of the brass. Brass bands. An exciting masterwork we don't get to hear very often because it is such a big uh, piece to stage. So it's really exciting that we're able to bring that to the Erie Philharmonic and the Warner stage this year. And uh, now we're going to move on to Edgar Meyer for a minute. Now, uh, we gave you a brief introduction earlier, Grammys and collaborations. You've been a very busy person for your whole career. Uh, now, you've uh, taken this the bass, the string bass, and brought it right to the forefront in American culture, uh, through orchestra, through bluegrass, through all of your collaborations. Uh, initially, though, you wanted to be a trumpet player. Is that true? Well, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <It's> <laughs> How, how'd you get your start, uh, string bass? Um, now, my father was a, a bass player, and I wanted to be like him. And he loved music more than anything um, 
else, and um, that seemed to just uh, pass straight to me. And so that was the way I really, um, that was the most important thing in my life. And bass was the vehicle. Um, but I mentioned to you uh, that I have a little place in my heart for trumpet, and I do. Um, it's, um, I guess, there, it comes up in, in, in numerous ways, and I'll mention two or three. Like, I might be uh, at Curtis, where I teach a few days a year, and uh, I will hear a violinist play, and they're um, playing, you know, very well, but with uh, too many slides and too much vibrato and just kind of um, I, playing in a youthful manner, I guess is how I could put it. Um, and and one of my one of my lines in that at that point might be now imagine if the principal trumpet played the way that you're playing how would that sound and um, what I'm really thinking is have a little dignity <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I try to introduce them to the idea that that more is not better and the kind of uh, and I I love the the simplicity and the directness that that a trumpet player has to play with in order to really create the effects that are necessary and feel like string players are missing the boat not to let that seep in and influence them more. Another one was, you know, when I was young, I used to really love uh, the way bands sounded when Snooky Young was playing lead. It's my favorite. Uh, um, well, he's my favorite. And uh, it just, and I learned later in life uh, that what he was doing I mean, I just, all I knew was that I loved the way he sounded, and I loved the way the band sounded when he was the lead trumpet player. I went back recently and listened to one of the high, high points in some of, uh, you know, which was a record by Thad Jones and Mel Lewis, probably it's Consummation. And I, I went back and listened, and with my more experienced ear was able to detect that the brass was tighter than the rhythm section. And that all, all respect to Richard Davis and Mel Lewis, you know, bass and drums in this band, and they were doing a beautiful job, but the brass were tighter. And that, that just struck me as odd, because you think the rhythm section's job, you know, is to hold the time, you know, so that people can play. Snooky Young was holding the time. And, and, and if you're not familiar with Snooky Young, you probably best recognize him as Doc Severinsen's lead trumpet player for the Tonight Show Band for years and years and years. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, the most famous trumpet player picked the best one. Um, said a lot of good things about Doc, really. Right. Absolutely. Now, uh, when we move on to uh, your compositions, when you start writing, uh, how did you make the transition first from being a bassist to being a composer? Um, well, it's not a transition in that, you know, that I maintain both. Um, but uh, composition, I guess, entered my life the day piano, piano entered our house, which I was probably eight or something like that, and I'd been playing bass. But once the piano showed up, then it was a whole new world. Um, and immediately I would write little little pieces you know the first one um i loved more than anything and then i don't know how old i was when i figured out that what i had written was stairway to heaven <laughs> but um it didn't deter me and uh i i uh so i think from that age uh i just 
I thought of my voice as, you know, something that consisted both of writing and of playing. And you cross over a lot. Uh, you play classical concertos with orchestras. You play bluegrass with famous bluegrass musicians. You collaborate on albums all around the world. Uh, how do you maintain such a, a varied palette of performance opportunities? Uh, most people get pigeonholed into one thing or the other. You're a jazz player. You're a classical player. You're a bluegrass player. How do you manage to cross all those bridges? Well, I guess the first thing um, is that the double bass doesn't have much repertoire. And this is also, I mean, it's a little bit the secret of, of what worked with Wynton Marsalis. You know, he had two or three trumpet concertos. He played them well. And I, I admire how he played them and even loved what he brought. Um, you know, in a slightly, once again, more dignified way of playing a couple of those pieces. Um, and, um, but it's not like having, you know, like the piano repertoire. A pianist, you know, has um, 20-some Mozart concertos, and most of them are much better music than a bass will ever be involved in. Um, you know, so you've got so you got complex issues. I mean, Andre Previn was quite, um, really quite credible on multiple fronts back in the 50s. Um, and I think, first of all, the time wasn't right. And, and it was kind of right. I mean, he sold over a million copies of uh, some of his recordings with Shelley Mann and Leroy Vinegar. So, but it wasn't, you know, accepted by the, the, the critics, I guess you would say, or I don't know, critics is quite the precise word, but uh, the rain, those, those who were uh, in power for whatever reason. And um, so um, for me personally, the trick is that um, I never saw these things as so desperate. Um, I, I wanted to find a way that my own voice made sense, you know, in multiple things. And the way I liken it is you might have um, a lot of different people that you interact with. And I don't mean musically. I mean a normal person, you know, they have the people they talk to at work. They have their if they're a guy, maybe they have their close male friends. They have a social circle with their wife and other people. You, if you have children, you're going to have that. And you're in each of these situations, and there'd be conversations you would have in one of these situations that I can guarantee you in my life, there's a couple conversations I would have in some situations that could not be had in a couple of other situations. And so I liken it more to that. I mean, you know, and I try to find a voice for myself that is um, um, that's credible, but, but where I'm always myself, but, you know, I just, there's some things you don't do. You know, I'm, uh, if I'm playing Botticini, you know, I'm going to, you know, it's going to be central to me that it's an, that he's a, really two things. Um, he's, he's a virtuoso uh, in the manner of Liszt and Paganini, and he is an opera guy uh, in the manner of Verdi and Rossini. So, that will be first and foremost, and at the same time, I'm just, you know, I'm speaking in my voice. Uh, and, you know, and it's me and Giovanni, we're having a collaboration. Well, you know, Giovanni, uh, well, he kind of started off uniquely. He started off violin, piano, and then when it was college time, he decided that he would rather get a scholarship so that he could afford to go to school. So he picked up the bass because one of the scholarships the school offered 
was for bass, bass or bassoon. So he had a choice. If he wanted a scholarship, grab one. So he jumped on the bass, and he took it uh, farther than anybody to that point had taken the bass. And his writing, like you said, he's been referred to as the Paganini of the bass. His writing for the Bodicini Concerto, which we're going to hear Saturday night with your Philharmonic, is pretty complicated, and he really puts in some really uh, virtuosic moments, some really good stuff. Uh, we would call it a little sparkle, a little extra schmutz that, that you might not get if you're just playing a regular bass concerto. And some of those techniques involve going very far down the fret neck, right. maybe even past the the, sure. the, the the neck onto just open strings. Yeah. Um, why would he do something like that knowing not every bassist is going to be able to do that? Was <laughs> he, he writing for himself? Yes, 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, he was writing for himself, and um, that's... You know, I haven't. Yeah, it just makes sense to me. Um, I've I've had that same urge my whole life, so God bless him. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, when you write, I'm sure as he was writing, he would play his piece over and over, and I'm sure he was changing it and adapting it practically every time he played it to make it fit him. Uh, do you find that we're going to be hearing your bass concerto also with the Philharmonic? Uh, do you find you do that? You're playing it along, and you're in the moment. And you're like, huh? Maybe I should be doing this instead change it and write it up the next time or is there one edition of the Meyer bass solo? Um, I think the the evolution is more about writing another piece. Um, I don't play this piece substantially differently than 25 years ago when I wrote it. Um, but the evolution is, all, there was an evolution maybe in the first uh, couple of years of the piece, I think. Uh, there were spots that I left improvised for quite a while, partially because I hadn't finished them. And um, and gradually, you know, you improvise a few times, and then one of them goes great, and you go, I want to do that, you know. And uh, so you figure out what that was, and you know, and then you you do that most of the time. Um, so yeah, I'm, I I like I try to find, you know, the the biggest joy of improvising is actually dialogue. And so, uh, you know, if I'm going to, you know, the the place where I'm going to do the most improvising is if someone else is, is, is very responsive and highly skilled, and then we can have a real conversation. So tomorrow night at the Warner Theater, we're going to hear the Meyer Double Bass Concerto. You want to tell us a little bit about the piece so we know what to expect? Well, um, it has very overt influences from two of my closest friends, uh, Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas. The first movement um, has, a, has a rootsy or bluesy element that um, you know that would be simply um, a little bit how uh, in, I would be inspired by my friend Jerry on the dobro, who is a very slidey player because he doesn't have frets. That's all. <laughs> uh, so it's, that's all he can do. And um, but it's um, and then the um, the third movement has a fiddle tune that when I wrote it. In my mind's eye, I imagined that it was Sam playing it and that it was a song that he had written, and he writes in a certain way. And so the very opening of that piece is, is, is an overt influence from those two people. Uh, that said, you know, it's, uh, I guess, a, di- a small difference. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm about to compare it to something I might write today. Um, and this was written in 1993. Um, I guess just that the influences are slightly more blended now, uh, and in this concerto they poke out. You can you can hear an overt bit of influence, especially in the bass part, um, uh, here and there. 
but but also very much you know put together like a in the same way that Bottasini is as a uh, almost like a 19th century construction in terms of what the form is in terms of you know and and very much a classical kind of show off concerto. Well, you also have a very beautiful violin concerto. Uh, we have a recording of the great Hilary Hahn playing this piece. Uh, one of the most beautiful first movements of anything I've ever heard. It's really a spectacular Thanks. piece of music. Uh, why don't we take a, I think Dan's getting it ready for us right there. Sue's going to switch over right now. We're going to take listen to just a couple minutes of the opening of Edgar Meyer's violin concerto featuring the great Hilary Hahn. say 80% of the harmony of that movement was generated in that manner. Do you through compose? Do you just start at the beginning and just write what you're feeling as you go or do you sit down and plan it out and then sit down and compose or do you Both. Like, mix them together? Both. I mean, you know, it, it's very efficient to start with the start with the end. I mean, honestly, sometimes the end is the most work just because it can be the most notes if you're going for a larger ending. Um, and and you just don't want to be up on a deadline and um, and then having to just draw a lot of notes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a little bit of pressure there too. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you you know, so if you're worried about a timeline, you leave the slow movement for the end um, because it can happen real fast. Well, uh, I was reading in your biography that you started playing bass when you were about five years old. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that we have a very special guest who happens to be five years old. And uh, 
I should let her mother tell the story, but from what I understand, she went to a strings day and saw all the different string options and decided she wanted to play the string bass. So we've got a special treat for everybody today. This is Joey Dearden Hirsch, and she will be playing a little bit of her bass for you. Joey is five years old. Hi, Joey. How are you? Welcome to WQLN. Hello. <laughs> Hello. So what are you going to play for us today? Fox and Goose. Fox and Goose? Fox and Goose. This is Joey Dearden Hirsch. Wonderful job, Joey. You want to take a bow? <laughs> if you're watching at Facebook on the interweb at uh, the WQLN Facebook page, you can see Joey perform, and we'll have that video up a little later on also. Uh, so were you that good when you were five? No. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have little sparkly stickers on your bass when you were five is another question. I would have liked to have had. <laughs> <laughs> Such yeah. a great job, Joey. Thank How about another round of applause for Joey Dearden Hirsch? She's got the bowing down to a, to a science, too. Uh, now, you notice the bass isn't a full-size bass, obviously. So, uh, Steve Weiser, uh, you do a lot of string outreach programs. Uh, what's a great age to start kids on if they're interested in a string program? Five. Seems to be the going age for <laughs> That's the age to make your debut anyway. Right, exactly. And the, the one thing we've seen is with our junior fill and how that's grown is that we, we've sort of created almost a pipeline for anyone at that age to kind of be able to get started. And we've, we see some of the most special things where we'll do an instrumental petting zoo at Celebrate Erie or somewhere out, sort of out in the public, where anybody of any age can walk up and try an instrument. And we, we saw a story two years ago. We were at Celebrate Erie. A student came up and tried a cello or tried a violin, actually, for the first time ever. We have small loner instruments. A kid came up, picked up a violin, first time ever in their life to try an instrument. And then they signed up for the Junior Phil. They got interested. They became a member of the Junior Philharmonic, had never touched an instrument before Celebrate Erie. Fast forward a year, that same student was now working the booth with the Junior Phil doing instrumental petting zoos for the next round of kids. So you have some beautiful photos where you have Anjali, one of our cellists now, working with the next round of kids of something she had done the year before. So it's it's fascinating. We, we, do, we focus so much on our concerts at the Warner and the bigger things that that we do, it's so nice to know that we're also working on the other end of the spectrum, creating the next the next ones of these, exactly. 
And as Edgar mentioned, his father was a musician, right, a teacher. Yeah. Uh, Joey's mom is a teacher. She's the new head of the music department at Allegheny College down in Meadville, Pennsylvania, Jennifer Dearden. So thank you so much for bringing Joey up. And we're going to hear more from Joey in just a little bit. That was beautiful. Thank you. And uh, Edgar, so collaborations. You've done so many collaborations with so many names. Uh, do you still have fanboy moments? You walk into a room with Emmanuel Axe for the first time or you step up on a stage with Chris Dealey. Do you still look at these guys and go, wow, I can't believe I get to work with these people? Uh, the one who inspires the most awe in me is uh, Zakir Hussain. Um, and I've only worked with him for 12 years. But, um, I, you know, we just finished a month together. And, um, you know, I just thank my stars every time, you know, when I get to hear what comes out of his uh, drums every night. I'm in complete awe. And uh, when we talk drums, he's uh, mostly... Tabla. Tabla. He's yes. a tabla player. Yeah. Uh, and uh, tabla, in case you're not familiar with it, you would hear it um, in kind of Indian music, perhaps, uh, Pakistani music. Yeah, that, it's, yeah that's right. It, it, um, it's a tuned drum. It's kind of a hand drum, correct? Um, yeah, it's two drums. So there's a low drum and a high drum, um, and um, the higher one is pitched, and the lower one is looser. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a very rich tradition, Indian classical music. And even though he uh, has uh, collaborated with um, in maybe more than any person I can think of with a wide range of remarkable artists from different disciplines, um, he, um, he has stayed at the heart of the uh, classical Indian music, which his father was at the heart of. His father played with Ravi Shankar and... Uh, the um so um and the the beauty of the indian classical music is you know um i don't think all music is created equal i just don't i mean some music is better than other music and or at least more interesting i mean you can it, it's it's more rich it's more there's there's just more in it and so and classical indian music does deserve that type of attention uh, in my obviously not humble opinion so when you work with these musicians, uh, do you pick and choose? Do you call people and say, you know what, we should do something together? Or do they call you and say, we'd like you to play bass on one of our uh, projects? Or is this something the record labels uh, put you together? Uh, the vast majority are people who are actually at some level friends of mine before we started doing much. Um, there's not a lot of, really Hillary is the only one that was put together by, uh, by business forces. Um, you know, um, that really was when we were both on Sony and they said, you know, would you like to write a concerto? And I said, I'd love to. Uh, but otherwise, the, it was interpersonal connections um, uh, without exception. I, uh, the Zakir one is a little, a little trickier in that when the National Symphony opened their new hall in 2007, I don't remember exactly, um, they... Um, asked Bela Fleck and I to write a concerto for the two of us to open, and uh, we'd already done that, and we, uh, you know, the world does not need two banjo-based concertos. <laughs> um, and so uh, they said, well, is there a person that you would want to work with that would make this work for you? And we, you know, there was only one person that really was at the top of both of our lists, and that was Zakir. And to our eternal good fortune, Zakir agreed, and then we've you know worked together with some regularity since. And 
but but even that you know there's so many uh, yeah i mean it became a friendship first and foremost but uh but otherwise yeah i mean all the people i worked with were introduced to me by other people i work with and you know it's just it's a community well one of my favorite recordings of the one of your collaborations is of course the goat rodeo sessions uh you got to work with the great Yo-Yo Ma. Sure. And uh, cool. a quintessential musician, again, uh, very capable of crossing over into whatever medium he wants also. Uh, any intimidation walking into a room and working with somebody like Yo-Yo Ma? You know, I've just known him so well for so long. Um, and uh, he certainly, you know, has been, you know, at a remarkable place in, in music from a young age and he understands how intimidating that might be so he does everything he could possibly do to defuse it um so you know at this point that's um it's it's uh that's part of you know that's part of his personality and and really part of most great musicians personality is uh, an ability to just create a, an environment where everybody's able to be comfortable and, uh, and, and be their best. Absolutely. Just like the Philharmonic. Daniel works very hard at creating that uh, particular uh, moment for the orchestra to make them feel comfortable when they walk in. Uh, and when you're working with young people, I guess you did a master class last night. Where was the master class last night? Uh, Cathedral of St. Paul, uh, Sharon Downey's Church on West 7th Street. Down your shirts. Okay, so uh, you do a master class. You're working with these young students. They all know your name now. Uh, so you walk in, and uh, what pieces of advice, what little jewels do you give to students when you're working with them about building a career? That's not one of my favorite subjects. I'll be direct. I want to talk about music. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so it's more about building your passion than it is about building your No, it's about, about learning, uh, learning about music and um, um, everything that plays into it. And to the extent that, you know, the professional thing influences the core of the music, uh, uh, which is inevitable, uh, I am, you know, engaged. But when it, it, when it starts to kind of overrun everything else, I'm, I disengage. Absolutely. Well, you've written some really beautiful music. We haven't had the opportunity on classics yet to hear the bass concerto, so we're going to uh, wait until after tomorrow to play that on the radio. That way people go and get tickets to see the Eerie Philharmonic Saturday night at the cool. Warner Theater. Uh, and also the Botticini uh, double bass concerto. So two concertos featuring the great Edgar Meyer. Daniel Meyer is going to be leading the Erie Philharmonic through one of Beethoven's grandest overtures, a Leonore number no. 3, including another great trumpet solo by Gary Davis, a principal trumpet player. Uh, and then the whole thing wraps up with Respighi's Pines of Rome. Again, the Pines of Rome is such a massive work. If you haven't had an opportunity to see it live it really is an experience rather than just a, a, a listening opportunity. Uh, so you don't want to miss tomorrow night at the Warner Theater, 8 o'clock, 7.15. We do a pre-concert chat in the First Niagara Room, always fun, and it's going to be an epic one tomorrow. So make sure that uh, you get to the Philharmonic a little early, get your tickets, put your coat in your seat, come on up to the First Niagara Room for the pre-concert chat, and then uh, sit back and hold on to your socks because it's going to be a concert for the ages here with the Erie Philharmonic. Uh, Steve Weiser, one last time. Uh, how do you put together a concert like this, and how do you find somebody like Edgar Meyer to come in as your soloist? I think for this one, we 
Daniel and I sort of have a good relationship to go back and forth between Daniel will have some marquee pieces that he wants to pick, and then sometimes he and I will work together on soloists. We we know that we want to have a violin soloist, a piano soloist, and then we always sort of like to think outside of the box. And this is where both of uh, Daniel and I both spent a lot of time at the Aspen Music Festival. So a lot of times we, we go back to either people that we've seen there or just other names that we're just always very aware of. And Edgar's been on my list for a while. So it's nice when it, it worked out this year. Year. And then when we wanted to do uh, his concerto mixed with the Botticini, we heard Italian. Or like, what other Italian piece could we put on a program that would be big? <laughs> big. Real big, exactly. <laughs> and, and then, so that's how we got Pines. Is we, any, any excuse to throw Pines of Rome on a concert, like, I'm sold. It's, it's maybe a little bit more on the expensive side, but because there's so many forces involved with it. But when you get to hear that sound, we were we were in the Warner last night for a rehearsal rare on a Thursday to be up in the theater, and getting to hear the orchestra last night on that stage, is just, it's, it is the kind of sound that is so powerful it will push you back in your seat. And that's before the extra brass players get to show up in the balcony. So it's, it's, it really it was a fun concert to put together, and it's, it's nice in November, it's a good, it's just starting to get cold outside, so it's a good excuse to come indoors, the heat's on. And as, we, as it's the final season before renovations, we also really wanted to pull all the stops out with the big pieces. Shostakovich 5, Pines of Rome, West Side Story, Beethoven 9. As this is the final go-around, as the theater we know it, we really want to kind of send it off in a grand way. Well, there's more information available on the entire upcoming concert season at eeriefill.org. You can get tickets by calling 455-1375. And just a tidbit of information for Edgar, when the season rolls out, before everybody else knows what's going on, Steve always gives me a little call and a heads up, and he's always a little proud of something. He's always like, oh, you won't believe who's coming in. You won't believe who's coming in. He spent about two weeks smiling and not telling me who was coming in, and when he finally told me it was Edgar Meyer, it was like a kid on Christmas for Steve. He was, his eyes lit up, and he's like, it's Edgar Meyer. And I'm like, no way. How did you do that? Oh, I'm feeling and the pressure so, now. You should, <laughs> you should, he was so excited that he got you, and we're excited to have you here. So thank you so much for spending some time with us here at WQLN today, oh, talking to the audience. Uh, thanks, Daniel, for coming in and spending some time in a rare Studio Q performance. You're usually busy on Fridays. You know, I'm normally teaching on, on right. Friday mornings. Which always makes me happy to be doing that, but also sad not to be with you for these because they're right. always so special to me and, a, and frankly, a chance for me to get to know our, our artists a little so bit. So, does more. this mean there's a room of students at Duquesne somewhere doing, wondering <laughs> they're where they're just running a mock right now? Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Steve, for coming up and spending some time with us. And why don't we wrap up this concert, uh, per, uh, this talk, this interview with another special performance by a special young bassist in just a few years? Maybe she will be the next Edgar Meyer. We can only hope. Thank you very much for joining me for Studio Q. I'm Brian Hanna. Thank you, Steve, Edgar, and Daniel for joining us. Thank you in the studio audience. Again, you'll be able to see this video on Facebook later on in the day if you'd like to recap this video. And again, if you'd like to check the Erie Philharmonic out, you can do it at eeriefill.org or by calling 455-1375. This is a concert you do not want to miss. Ladies and gentlemen, Joey Dearden Hirsch.
you so much, Joey. Thank you, Brad and Jennifer, for bringing her up to help us out today. Edgar, now you've got something to live up to when you get to the Philharmonic tomorrow night. Uh, I'm you're exactly right, Brian. So thank <laughs> you so much to the Dearden Hirsches for bringing uh, Joey in to play for us. You did beautiful, Joey. Thank you so much. And again, thank you to everybody at home. I'm Brian Hanna. Thanks for joining us for Live from Studio Q. You can check us out on Facebook, and you can catch us every day uh, from 9 to 1 live for classics. Thank you, and have a great afternoon, everybody.